Heavenly Father, now may the preaching of your word, even in these different circumstances, be empowered by your spirit to serve the ends for which you have given us, to glorify the gospel of Jesus Christ, to work faith and assurance in your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Luke 22. We have been considering the, the means of grace, those gifts that God gives to his church, which are the means that the Spirit uses to work faith and assurance in those who are members of the body of Christ. Along with the preaching of the word, the Lord gave the church two signs, two sacraments to be carried out by the church, which visibly demonstrate that gospel that is being proclaimed. These are baptism and the Lord's Supper. A sacrament is an outward sign instituted by God, which conveys an inward spiritual grace. The work of the sacraments is always related to preaching. They picture the word that is preached. They themselves are a visible word from God. And like the preaching of the gospel is empowered by the spirit, in the same way, these visible demonstrations of the gospel serve actual spirit-empowered ends for the people of God. Today, we will consider what the Lord's Supper proclaims and how the Spirit makes effective use of that proclamation as a means of grace. So Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, uh, oh, that's all. Verse 20. <laughs> so the first thing that the Lord's Supper accomplishes is to commemorate the atonement of Jesus, which saves his people. It, of course, was not an accident that the Lord's Supper was instituted at Passover. Passover was the celebration of remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt, his salvation of his people from slavery. In particular, Passover commemorated the death of the sacrificial lamb, whose blood was spread over the doorpost, so that when the angel of death came to take the firstborn son of all the Egyptian households, he would pass over the houses of God's people. In taking the Passover, the Lord's people were reminded that it was not their merit that caused them to be spared while the Egyptians suffered. The wrath God poured out on his enemies might equally have been leveled against the Israelites. But because God had chosen them as his people, God accepted an atoning sacrifice, a lamb without blemish, whose blood was spilt on, in their place. The angel saw the blood and accepted that death in the place of the firstborn of the Israelites. And then at Passover, they ate the lamb. They actually enjoyed being nourished by the sacrifice that died in their place. Instead of having their lives taken, 
their lives were nourished, prolonged by the food of that atoning sacrifice. Jesus' disciples were well aware of this as he passed out the supper to them. The bread that he passed out was very likely the unleavened bread eaten at Passover. And so Jesus took this old covenant sign for God's people that they were saved by grace through an atoning sacrifice, and he renewed it for his new covenant people. Now the supper would commemorate the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who went to the cross to bear the punishment that we otherwise would have faced. Just like the Israelites were nourished, given life by a meal that represented a death which happened in their place, Jesus instituted a supper to remind us that a body was broken and blood was spilled so that instead of bearing the punishment of death ourselves, we might be nourished by his death and resurrection even unto eternal life. Jesus told his apostles that they were to carry out the supper as remembrance. Just as the Passover reminded the Israelites of the atoning sacrifice that led to their deliverance, so do we remember the sacrifice that saved us as a people for God, now enjoying the salvation of the new covenant, the death and resurrection of Jesus. This remembrance, <coughs> says Paul, involves proclamation. As we remember, we remind each other and proclaim to the world the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus gave us this way of remembering and proclaiming because he knows that our faith needs it. He knows our weakness, that we need regular reminding, a visible physical aid to draw us back to the events on which our faith is founded. As we partake in the supper, we are reminded not just of what the gospel is, but as we take it that it is true for us that we have nothing to offer God ourselves, that we deserve only punishment. We regularly come to remember and embrace the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that he took our punishment so we could have eternal life in him. Communion looks both backwards at the cross and also forwards to our future hope. Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our feast as a gathered church around the Lord's Supper now anticipates when the whole universal church will be gathered to share in the heavenly feast together. So the Lord's Supper proclaims the whole gospel, the atonement that turned our punishment into nourishment, the intercession of Jesus that continually sustains us, and the eternal life he is nourishing us for which will be revealed when death is defeated and Jesus returns. So that's our first point this morning, that in the Lord's Supper, believers commemorate the atoning sacrifice of Jesus to save his people. But communion is not only a declaration that we make. When we look at this first Lord's Supper in Luke, it is primarily seen as a gift that Jesus gives to his apostles. He says, take this. And then he himself distributes the bread and the wine, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Just as the new covenant that the supper commemorates is a gift from God to us, the supper itself is a gift given to us by Jesus himself. He distributes it to his apostles. And this is one of the many passages where the apostles receive gifts or commissioning 
from Jesus as representatives of the church that they would establish. They received the supper to establish it and hand it down to the rest of the church to be carried out by the church when it gathers in congregations. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. We see in this passage, the Corinthian church was experiencing serious problems related to the distribution of the Lord's Supper. This was related to the more fundamental problems that you see throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, that there were factions forming in the church, as well as a misunderstanding of how to carry out church discipline. People who should have faced the church's discipline were being celebrated, and people who were fellow members of Christ's body were treating each other with contempt. These problems became very visible when the church tried to carry out Lord's Supper, which we will see was meant to be a very visible picture of the church, is meant to be a very visible picture of the church. So Paul's instructions to the Corinthians are helpful for us. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be divisions, factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We can see in this passage that the Lord's Supper is given to the church to be carried out by the church, distributed by the church to the church body. Throughout this passage, Paul repeatedly contrasts the supper with meals the Corinthians eat on their own. He tells them if they're hungry, Go eat and drink in their houses. He evidently does not see meals that believers eat apart from the church or on their own as being the Lord's Supper. Paul says the supper is for when you come together as a church. He also says, 
not just when you come together, but when you do, you have to wait for each other, indicating that it's essential to the supper that the whole church be invited to come to the table. So the supper can only take place when the whole church is invited together because the supper represents a single meal shared by the community. It's bread that is broken and passed around. It's a cup that is poured out for many people. It's very much a family dinner, like a family reunion. It doesn't work if the family is separated eating individual meals in their homes. It only is what it is if everyone in the family is invited to the same table to share a meal together. Paul insists that if the whole church is not invited to the table, then the meal that is being eaten is not the Lord's Supper. God designed the Lord's Supper to be shared by the whole church and only the church. Christ gave the supper to the church specifically as a way for the church to recognize and affirm those who were united to Christ by visibly seeing them around the Lord's Supper united to each other. This is our second point this morning. In the Lord's Supper, God declares through his church those who are united to Christ and each other. As we pass around the bread and the wine, we show who the things the supper represents are true for. We show who is covered by the atoning blood of Jesus, who has had their punishment taken and is being nourished to eternal life. <clears throat> and as we distribute the supper to each other, we show that our shared participation in Christ has united us one to another. He is the head of us all, making us all unified members of his body. We aren't even a group of individuals eating together. We are one body with one head. If we reject any part of the body, we reject the head, Christ himself. This shows why it was so wicked that the Corinthians were excluding fellow church members from the table. Paul says their selfish hoarding takes away the unity that the Lord's Supper is meant to show. If the Lord's Supper is simply everybody trying to get a meal for themselves, everybody taking this as individuals in an individualistic way, then says Paul, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Paul says the only imaginable reason why factions might be forming within a church is that it has too long tolerated unbelievers being recognized as members. Paul implies that the only value that might come from this rising division is that the church can finally recognize, as was the case with the man caught in sexual sin, that some of their members are not really members of the body of Christ. And conversely, he says, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The Lord's Supper is meant then to represent not just a unified church, but also a unified church set apart from those who are not believers, those who feast at the Lord's table and those who do not. Two ways the church might fail in this regard and thus fail to properly carry out the Lord's Supper would be to refuse genuine believers from coming to the table, to reject their membership at the church and their invitation to the Lord's Supper. But another way they could fail would be to recognize fellowship with those whose faith has not been affirmed. If the church fails through the supper to visibly demonstrate who God's people are, who the members of the body, the church are, then, says Paul, the Lord's Supper simply fails to be the supper. It has been too 
fundamentally undermined. When the church gathers as a family, when we gather for the worship service, guests are freely invited to join us. We want them to come, to look in on the family of God, to hear the gospel preached, to benefit even from the fellowship, all of which the Spirit will use to draw them into God's family, to make them into children of God. <coughs> and as the guest experiences these things alongside the church member, it is generally impossible to tell the member of the body from the unbelieving guest. But the supper was given by God so that the church could visibly show what the preaching declared. It's the part of the service that shows those who believe in Jesus and are united to him and those, those who are set apart from the world, even from those guests that are among them. As Paul says to the Corinthians, to take the Lord's Supper in a way that disregards the church, that ignores what it's meant to picture about who is united to Christ and who is not, is to take it in an unworthy manner. And Paul's warning against such behavior is serious. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You can see here that Paul binds the Lord's Supper to the church's role of judgment. The way that the Corinthians are taking the Lord's Supper shows that they are failing in their role of judgment as a church. They are not discerning who the body is through the Lord's Supper, not showing who is a believer and who isn't. So God is placing them under his judgment. And his judgment or discipline is actually for their sake. If the Corinthians and we ourselves had carried out discipline in the Lord's Supper rightly, discerning who is in the body and who isn't, then we could happily recognize that this discipline isn't meant to harm even the one being disciplined. It is rather for their sake as well as for the sake of the church. How then does the Lord's Supper participate in discipline? we see that it is a part of, the, of church discipline because it is only meant to be distributed to those who have been properly examined, whose faith is tested and shown to be genuine, who are even affirmed by the church in membership. Paul says that everyone who takes part in the Lord's Supper must have examined themselves. If we pair this with the earlier call that the church recognize those who are genuine, we see that the Lord's Supper is meant for those who are discerned to be members of the body of Christ, both by their own understanding and by the affirmation of the church. The Supper is God's way of providing assurance to those who believe that they are a part of the body, that their faith is genuine. It's also a disciplinary gift to those who should have no reason to be assured, because this is the moment when they will visibly see that they are not a part of the fellowship 
that they are not a member of the body of Christ, that they have no clear reason to be assured that their punishment is taken, that they are reconciled to God rather than his enemies. If the church doesn't participate in this work of discernment and discipline around the Lord's Supper, its whole work of declaring who is united to Christ and each other loses all meaning. The young man who was sinning in Corinth should not have been invited to the table because his invitation showed that it didn't mean anything to be a part of Christ's body. If the supper declared this man is, is, is around the table with us, he's united to Christ like the rest of us, then the world sees there is no difference between a believer and a non-believer. That everything the Bible says about justification, sanctification are untrue. That the gospel that's being preached is ineffective. Because this man who is clearly living as an enemy of God is declared by the church to be one the gospel is true for. To be united to Christ and the rest of the body. Paul wanted to see this man excluded from the table for his own sake primarily as well as for the church. So that he could see that whatever he thought a Christian was, was incorrect. He still needed to believe in Jesus. And then he could freely be invited to the table as a member of the church. Likewise, to refuse anyone who the church should affirm is also a grievous sin because it applies human standards to who is a part of the body of Christ. We do not want a high bar for who can come to the table. It is only those who have faith in Christ but it is all who have faith in Christ. The Lord's Supper is perhaps the primary place where the whole church gets to visibly see church discipline carried out. To remember our analogy from two weeks ago, the Lord's Supper is the place where the church exercises its duty to tell those who are about to jump out of a plane whether or not they have a parachute. It is by giving or withholding the supper that we say, you have given every evidence you have a parachute, or you have given evidence that your parachute is false, that you still need a real parachute. <coughs> if we misunderstand the role the Lord's Supper plays in discipline, then we will likely fail to practice biblical church discipline. We might make discipline more strict than the Bible does. Instead of withholding the supper, we might ban people from the gathering altogether or shun them from our community. This is not what the Bible would have us do because God's desire for those who are not his, even those who have been disciplined by the body, is that they would hear the gospel, that they would be brought into regular contact with it so that they might become a part of his family. Another way we would fail to practice church discipline if we fail to practice the supper is that we might abandon discipline entirely. This is what many mainline churches have done. They see it as cruel and divisive to withhold any aspect of the service from the visitor or from the person even who shows no fruit of being a believer. These gifts like the Lord's Supper that were meant for the body become instead evangelistic tools. We give them to everyone to help people feel like they belong to the church even before they believe. But this very principle, belong before you believe, clearly shows what these churches are getting wrong. Because we can only belong when we have believed. To give the Lord's Supper to a non-believer or someone the church cannot affirm is to tell them that they are already a part of the church. That they have everything from Christ, united to the body of Christ. They are one whose faith is sure when that is not true of them. 
these churches hope that if we pretend these things are true for people long enough, that it will make it so. But this logic is self-defeating. Because if we have already extended full participation into the church, in the church to them, including the supper, then we've told them there's nothing left for them to do. <laughs> they can be satisfied. Whatever they are, whatever they feel, that must be what a Christian is. That's at least what the church thinks. We have then robbed faith of all its content. It is the exact problem the Corinthians had by not disciplining the man caught in sin with his stepmother. We misconstrue what it means to be a Christian until it is something worse than an unbeliever. And the gospel is shown to be powerless. And the world sees that it means nothing to become a Christian. The church has no means of declaring to them that we want them to actually repent of their sin and become a part of this body and join us at the feast table. This problem, this failure to discipline, either leaves churches full of unregenerate people who start recreating the church according to their unregenerate pleasures, as we see in the seeker-sensitive church, or it leaves churches empty, because if the church tells me I'm fine as I am, then why should I go at all? A problem we commonly see in the liberal churches. So the Lord's Supper plays a special role in distinguishing who is a part of the body of Christ. It is distributed to those whose faith is shown to be genuine by examination, so that it might set apart from the world those who are united to Christ in each other. When I take the supper with someone, I am declaring that they are responsible for me and that I am responsible for them. We recognize that we are co-members with each other, that we depend upon each other even as we mutually depend upon Christ. That we could never say to each other, I have no need of you. That is what we say to all with whom we share the supper. So if you choose not to be a member of this church, if you do not want us to take responsibility for you, if you do not want to take responsibility for us, we will not coerce you. But we cannot provide you with the means that would assure you that you have been examined and shown to be a part of this body, if you have rejected that membership, it is a package deal. We cannot provide to someone assurance that they are something which they have ultimately rejected. In this way, the Lord's Supper operates very similarly to baptism. Baptism is also meant to be a marker of those who are set apart as Christ's body, of those who have faith. If we offered baptism to anyone who demanded it on any terms, it would become meaningless in its goal of showing who has actually been united to Christ's death and resurrection, washed by the Spirit, made new. Worse still, it would provide false assurance for that person that their simply demanding the sacrament was enough reason to assume that they are a Christian, even if their life and their profession shows that they are not. The sacraments are not for level two Christians those who have graduated to some higher plane. They are simply for Christians, all Christians, and only Christians. We already accept that for baptism. We accept that this requires some affirmation from the church that will administer it. And so, as we see in Corinthians, this is also true for the supper. This is also why the Bible indicates that we should withhold both of those sacraments from those who are too young to receive the church's affirmation. Children, like those who are guests in the service, are meant to watch rather than participate in the supper. 
because the church cannot make the determination to give or withhold the supper from them as members. For the church to give the supper to a child, we would also have to be prepared to withhold it from a child in church discipline. Until we are prepared to examine a child's own faith, until they themselves can examine it, then we neither place them under church discipline nor offer to them the affirmation of the Lord's Supper. This is not to say they cannot be believers, only that we will treat them as under the responsibility of their parents rather than the church. It's their parents we will talk to about their behavior, not them personally. It's their parents we will trust to shepherd them, even regarding their participation in the church. Their parents we will hold responsible for whether they have participated in the worship service and the fellowship of the saints. So we will withhold this affirmation from the child until it is able to exist in a relationship of responsibility between them personally and the church, which could in some cases involve church discipline. In both baptism and communion, we wait until an age when we can hold a person responsible for their examination and can as a church affirm their faith as genuine apart from their parents. To allow the young and those who are clearly not a part of Christ's family to watch the supper that they cannot participate in really is a kindness to them. Because this is the part of the service where they cannot hide from themselves that there is something that they have yet to become. That they cannot be affirmed to have become. There is a feast table to which all of God's people are invited and they are not yet at that table. They have not yet been shown to be set apart as one of God's people. <coughs> we don't want to pretend that the position they are in now is just as good as being a part of the family. We want to invite them into the feast. We want them to long for that and then rejoice to learn that an invitation is so simple to obtain. This is when we have an opportunity to tell them God in his grace has not made it difficult for them to become one of his children, to be welcomed at the table of the Lord. Repent and believe, and you too will be welcomed into the household, no longer an orphan, but a member of the family, to sit down at the feast table, united with the rest of the body of Christ. But you cannot enjoy that feast until you are a part of the family. We can all the more see the need for the table to represent only those who are recognized as part of the family of God when we also see that through their faith, the Lord's Supper is actually meant to provide tangible and a nourishing effect to God's people. This tangible effect is taken away from the supper if we do not offer it only to those who have faith, who have been discerned to be a part of the body. The Corinthians were actually physically suffering for misunderstanding and misapplying who could come to the table. But conversely to that, to rightly apply the Lord's Supper means to actually receive nourishment from it, just as the Passover lamb actually fed those who ate it. This is our third point this morning. In the Lord's Supper, God spiritually nourishes his people. Last week, when we considered preaching, we saw that God's Spirit actually made use of preaching to miraculous ends. The Spirit works faith and repentance through preaching and nourishes God's people unto their sanctification. As the sacraments are also means of grace, God's Spirit works through them in an actual, powerful, effective way. 
through the Lord's Supper, we actually enjoy the spiritual nourishment of participating in Christ's body. This is not to confuse ourselves with the old Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and the wine actually change into blood and flesh as we eat them. Jesus has died once for all. The sacrifice need not be offered again. What the Spirit does is actually communicate to us who take the Lord's Supper the real nourishing effects of receiving the body and blood of Christ. We are actually spiritually being fed by this meal. The assurance being worked by the Lord's Supper is not only external. It's not just the good of remembering Christ's death and resurrection. The Spirit is actually accomplishing something in us as we join with the church, the body of Christ, sharing the nourishing effect of the body of Christ together. Jesus prepared his followers to understand this throughout his ministry, that because of his atoning sacrifice, his body broken, his blood spilled, that they would be nourished unto eternal life rather than punished unto eternal destruction, that this nourishment would actually come from him, from participating in himself, the atoning sacrifice. Twice in Jesus' ministry, he famously provided a massive crowd with food. He filled their hungry bellies with bread. And after he fed them, the crowd followed him looking for more food. What did Jesus say? John 6, 27 to 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do, we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The miraculous provisions of food that Jesus gave to the crowds were just signs pointing to Jesus greater nourishment that would sustain his people, not just for a few hours, but to eternal life. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Whatever physical bread can do for the body, Jesus can do something more, more nourishing, much greater, more sustaining for us by providing greater food that nourishes unto eternal life. And when the people ask for this nourishment, comparing it to the bread from heaven, the manna sent from God, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Soon after, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus not only provides eternal nourishment for his people, but he is that nourishment to us. Just like the sacrificial lamb offered at Passover, he is the sacrifice offered for our sin in our place. So that instead of receiving death from God, we receive him in, as nourishment to us unto life. Jesus broke the bread. He distributed it to the founders of the church, and he said, this is my body for you. He gave the gift of himself. And if this was true at the first supper, it is true now. He himself administers the supper to us, now through his appointed officers, 
to his church for their nourishment unto eternal life. As Jesus said, this is my body. He knew it was just bread. Physically, it would always only be bread. But he still said, this is my body. It is still actually his body in a real nourishing sense as we take it. The vitality of Christ is spiritually transferred to all who partake, infusing our mortal dying frame with immortal nourishment from the resurrection body of Jesus so that we might share in that immortality. The meal also actually strengthens our soul as we take it. It makes our faith and our joy healthier. It helps to participate in a balanced spiritual diet that lets us grow in our spiritual health and maturity, even as we are being sanctified. The Lord's Supper is a gift for your spiritual vitality and sanctification. We see now all the more the importance of being gathered when we take the supper. Christ is the head of the body that is the church, administering the supper to his body parts. Like a head eats to nourish the body, so Christ, our head, provides nourishment of his resurrected immortality to the whole body together, to the church together. And the only thing that Jesus says we need to have access to this eternal nourishment is to believe in him believe in his body broken and his blood spilt on our behalf and we have that nourishment through him forever this also tells us that to miss the supper to miss taking it with the church is a genuinely sad thing it was our plan naturally alongside this sermon to enjoy the visible declaration of the body of Christ and the nourishing effects of the Lord's Supper together. But we can't do that because we're not together. And when the church is not gathered, the supper is not the supper. To try and recreate it on our own would be to miss what it is. And so it would not have the effect of nourishing our faith and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes that the supper is meant to have. This is also one of the key reasons that online church meetings and live streams can never really be the worship service. You, can't, you are actually missing out on spiritual nourishment by missing out on the supper, by not taking part in the gathered church sharing the spiritual meal at the feast table. To miss out on the church gathering and the nourishing supper is spiritually unhealthy. It leads to malnourishment in your faith, your spiritual vitality, your joy in Christ. This is one of the reasons that for those of you who have been away from us at these times, we deeply long for when you can come back. Because we know that you need this nourishment of participating with your church family in the Lord's Supper, of being shown to be among us as we are nourished and strengthened and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. And that is why it is good that when we are away from the body, that we desperately long to be back together, to long to be recognized through the supper as belonging to this body under our head, Jesus Christ, to commemorate the gospel with the rest of the body, to be nourished by our spiritual head alongside the rest of the body. Now, in closing, you will recognize that some of what we are seeing in God's word this morning doesn't reflect what we uh, have necessarily been practicing. 
As elders, we have been strongly convicted of these truths related to discipline in the Lord's Supper, that they are a gift to the church. And as we look at the future of this church, as we grow in maturity, we want to align with Scripture's view. But we want to do that slowly and patiently. And as we prepare for that, I want to speak to a few of you individually. First, if you see yourself as a part of this family but have not committed to membership, have not allowed the church to declare that you are ours as you declare that we are yours, then please just ask. We want membership at this church to simply represent those who are Christians who are committed to this church body. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ and said, this is my church. I am responsible for them. They for me. This is all that is necessary even to come to the Lord's table with us in this visible sign that we are the body of Christ united to each other, please come talk to us and give us that chance to agree to be responsible for you and call you a part of our church family. If you are a member and are concerned about what this might mean for your children or your friends, please do not hesitate to come talk to the elders as well. As we recognize this is God's design for his church, we strongly believe that this is what will work through the spirit for the good of his people, for children, for the guests who are not yet his people, better than any of our own means. And if you are really not a member of Christ's church at all, then we are eager that you would not be confused that you are. We do not want to give you false assurance that you are a part of this community when you are still an enemy of Christ. Not because we don't like you. Not because we don't want fellowship with you. We want you to know Christ. We are desperate that you would have the greatest gift in the world of him being yours of his death being in your place so that instead of bearing the punishment for your sin, you can be nourished unto eternal life. So we will recognize you are an outsider, exhorting you to repent and believe because we care about you. Too much to pretend your paper parachute will work if you jump out of a plane. Just call out on the Lord and be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ, died and risen again, reigning for all eternity. And we will not hesitate to invite you to the table with us as members of the church. And then for the rest of us, let us together long for the day when we can gather around the table of the Lord together to remember his death until he comes, to recognize the body that has been united to him and be nourished by him unto eternal life. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper, even as we miss that gift together. We have heard much from your word about the role of the supper, and Father, I pray that as it is from your word, it would be for our good, for our maturation in the spirit, that it would work a deeper love and appreciation of you. And that when we gather again to practice the Lord's Supper, it would be all the more effective, all the more delightful as your spirit works nourishment in us, that we might be strengthened in our faith, encouraged to see each other who is a part of the body of Christ together and reminded of this wonderful gospel that is true for us, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we proclaim 
until he comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.